From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. That is Mickey Dolenz, and I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilbert. Mickey Dolenz is the last surviving member of the Monkees. They landed in American living rooms through a 1960s TV show. Four young men played members of a fictitious band struggling for success. Two of the actors were already musicians in their own right. Two became proficient over the course of the show. Mickey Dolenz, who played guitar but learned how to play drums during the show, was the lead vocalist on many of the band's bigger hits, including what you just heard, Last Train to Clarksville, Pleasant Valley Sunday, I'm a Believer, and while some have called them the American answer to the Beatles, others, including Mickey himself, say that's an oversimplified and not totally accurate descriptor. We're going to talk with Mickey Dolenz later in this episode. And Mickey Dolenz performs live this Thursday, July 21st, at UNCW's Keenan Auditorium. But first, we're going to get some cultural perspective from Angie Zombeck, an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She teaches a class called Rock and Roll in American Society, and she joins me now. Professor Zombeck, welcome to Coastline. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So good to have you with us. Help us understand why the Monkees became such a big hit in the 1960s and in 1970s America. That's a great question. And they kind of fall in a space in rock and roll history where there was really kind of a void in the United States. So the first wave of rock and roll hit about the mid-1950s and then started to trail off come about 1959. Events like Elvis being drafted in the Army, the death of Buddy Holly kind of made the music die, to quote Don McLean. And then in the middle of that, in the early 60s to mid-60s, there was a production company in New York called the Brill Building. And they were kind of a throwback to the way that music used to be created. And what I mean by that is before World War II in the 1930s, when music was produced, there was really the focus on the song. There wasn't so much a focus on the performer. And songs were crafted and then basically matched to various artists. And so in the early to mid-60s, the Brill Building kind of resurrected that with their producers. Producers had an awful lot of control. So there were some girl groups that were out there, like the Shirelles. But the United States was really kind of looking for kind of the next big thing. And also in the middle of that space were groups like the Beach Boys that emerged. But when the Monkees came on, I think they were really important because they appealed to, at that point, kind of the the fans who represented the first wave of rock and roll. And what I mean by that is kind of like like a younger teenage audience that could really kind of latch on to their music. The 60s was also an interesting decade because there was a split come 1965, but even more so 1967. And this is, of course, right kind of where the monkeys fall in. There's really a shift from 
the softer lyrics of rock and roll being kind of focused on love and teenage romance and fun. And of course, there's rebellion woven into that. But there's also a turn to folk rock and psychedelia, which was more interested in the movements in the 60s, whether it's civil rights or anti-war and making social commentary. And so when the monkeys came on, especially when they came on screen, they kind of fit in that older kind of first wave of rock and roll. Right. And some say, and Mickey Dolenz himself would say that they were not quite as countercultural as, say, the Beatles, because they were initially, anyway, a product of network television. Mm-hmm. So what did that mean? Did they, did they offend anyone? Were they, were they kind of uh, groundbreaking at the time or sanitized? How do, how do you see that today? Yeah, I don't I really don't think that they were offensive on television at all. I think their story was pretty compelling. Um, A group of singers who wanted to make it big and really kind of struggled to do so. And in some ways, you know, they they parallel how the Beatles started because the Beatles were very manufactured as well. Before they came um, over to the United States, even there was really the United States was kind of exporting more culture than Britain was producing. And so what the concern in England was that its own artists should be, you know, topping their charts instead of these American artists that kept coming across the pond. And the Beatles producer was afraid that actually if they had gone to the United States that they weren't going to make it. So there's kind of a similar level really of control by the managers in putting out songs, producing songs. And then, I mean, the, the Beatles, of course, were you know, they, they created Beatlemania in the United States and elsewhere around the world. And um, as far as the monkeys go, when they're on television, they really are. They do have um, a producer who is writing songs out of that Brill building pr- tradition that I mentioned. Right. And so they're really kind of packaged. And I think there's that's that's really not an accident as far as rock and roll history is concerned. Um, and this, again, kind of going back to the first wave of rock and roll, that hits at a moment where American society is starting to fracture over issues, most particularly civil rights. And really the rise of rock and roll parallels the civil rights movement in many ways. You could make that argument. And so um, a lot of early rock stars like Chuck Berry, when they put out songs, um, white performers and white producers would sanitize them to make them more popular for that white middle class audience. Interesting. And, you know, you mentioned that these were highly produced acts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as someone who is not a a musical history expert, I think of kind of engineered boy bands (laughs) as something that was a phenomenon in the 90s and early aughts. (laughs) I didn't know that it went as far back Mm -hmm. as the mid maybe even early 20th century? Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, um, the well, going way, way back, I mean, before the Second World War in the 1930s, the kind of predecessor to the Brill Building was Tin Pan Alley. And Tin Pan Alley was, it's, it's literally a street in New York with a bunch of pianos, and it's called that because people are planking away on the pianos trying to figure out, you know, what song is going to come out. And there's still... Um, Again, producers have a lot of control. Music is distributed by sheet music. It's played live on radio. That was a big thing. When radio first came out, the producers of radio stations thought it would be fraud if we played recordings. And so that that music is packaged there. 
So then we fast forward to rock and roll. And in that first wave, you kind of have the rebellious image of Elvis Presley versus the sanitized image of somebody like Pat Boone. And there was a very specific function to people like Pat Boone as a performer and then also to hosts like Dick Clark because teenagers' parents are looking at Elvis on stage and listening to the lyrics of his songs and thinking, this really isn't what I would like my child to be listening to. <laughs> and so there's and, and of, why was it? Why were Elvis's <laughs> lyrics at the time so threatening to well, parents? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, he... Um, is threatening socially because he's a white man who is adapting elements from R&B, which was a distinctively African-American genre of music. And so in the midst of, I mean, of course, 1954 is the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and there's, you know, subsequently the civil rights movement kicks off. To have a white performer become that prominent playing music that was a decidedly African-American genre was very upsetting. And then, of course, there's... So is that because it legitimized or made mainstream music that had been African-American? Why was yes. that upsetting? The, the biggest, I think, problem, so to speak, with Elvis was really fears of desegregation, of that collapsing of culture. Because early on in music history, there were... There were three charts. I mean, you could, you could say in many ways that the development of music parallels the development of the United States as a nation, going from being very local to, thanks to development of technology, becoming kind of a nation in, through expansion, but then also a national culture. So the three genres are country western, which is really going to appeal mostly in the south to whites. Then we have R&B, which, like I said, is for our African-American community, and then the pop charts. And so if a song was produced and it happened to chart on two of those, at least, different charts, then it was called a crossover. And so when you have these adaptations and you have a performer like Elvis that's really heavily influenced growing up in Memphis, which was kind of a hub of R&B, and he's adapting those musical styles that are particularly related to, to R&B, there's a big, really, outcry about changes that are going to come, potentially, in American society. Outcry by white people, mm -hmm. to be clear. Exactly, yes. So one of the other things that you explore in your, your rock and roll history class is the difference between chart position for a song and album sales. And, and I thought that was interesting just because there's an interview that Mickey Dolenz and fellow monkey Michael Nesmith did mm -hmm. before his death on Australian TV in which uh, Michael Nesmith admits that uh, he agreed this was early on to an interview and he said to the reporter, but I'm going to lie to you about everything. And the reporter asked him about album sales, and he just picked a number out of the air, 35 million or something, and <laughs> said, then said something like, um, the monkeys outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. combined. Mm -hmm. And then I got that line in uh, some information from Mickey's publicist when we were talking about doing the interview. And I said, oh, is this true? Because I think they debunked it on an Australian TV show. And he checked it and came back and said, it's actually 65 million albums mm -hmm. now. And... 
And yes, monkeys experts say it's true. So how do we verify that? How what what does all that mean? Gosh, that's a that's a great question. I mean, the charts in early on in rock and roll in the fifties and the sixties, um, they were kept track of by Billboard magazine and then also Cashbox for jukebox records or record sales, record playing. And I mean, the charts are really kind of tracking the music's popularity played in, like I said, the jukebox or its popularity is being disseminated to a public audience. What they actually mean, though, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure really how much credence we can give to that because there are songs that chart well that people just forget. And there are other songs that don't chart very well that, you know, are very, very influential. So I kind of take, I guess I kind of take charts with a grain of salt. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Some would say at this point that uh, even if we can't necessarily say with 100% certainty that these are the numbers, the monkeys are and were a phenomenon Mm -hmm. and and an important part of American music history. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they should have a spot in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I would say yes. I would really say yes. I mean, I think that they um, are really kind of a case study in how music developed. And what I mean by that is when they were first cast on the show, they're very, very carefully controlled. And they reject that. I mean, they were in some ways seen by the producers, like here's, you know, they, they audition, but their musical abilities were in many ways discounted. And I think as they went on, they proved everybody wrong. And they became a very, very popular band and then ended up being able to break through that element of control that first existed. And really kind of on a broader scale, that's exactly what music did throughout the 1960s. When there's the shift away from the Brill Building producers and those artists, and we start to get guys like you know, Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead, and we could, you know, go on from there, they totally shift the direction of popular music and how it's produced. And in doing that, the emphasis rested at that point, not just on the song and not matching, you know, a song to an act who can play it, but on the artists themselves who can break away, become independent, write their own stuff and perform it. So I think um, given their, given their, the monkey's track record, given their popularity, given the statistics on their sales, and given just their, their story, I think they definitely do deserve a spot in the Rock Hall. You're listening to Coastline. Angie Zombeck is a history professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where she teaches a class called Rock and Roll and American Society. And so you've said that the producers of the Monkees TV show didn't want well-known musicians for that show. That's why they were going for for unknowns at Mm -hmm. that point, but unknowns who had acting chops Mm -hmm. and music chops. Why was that? What what would have been different about the show if they had gone for some musicians who were a little further along in their careers? That's a great question. Um, I'm really, I don't know if I can really fully give that an answer. But I mean, I guess the simplistic answer is they, hadn't, they have an agenda. 
They have something that they want to accomplish. They have a product that they want to sell and a certain vision for the way that the show is supposed to go. And in going with individuals who do not necessarily have a name for themselves yet, there's kind of more leeway in being able to direct that, I think. Right. Now, can you help us understand why the monkeys ended? Because So you have this phenom happening in the 60s on TV. They develop from actors playing musicians mm-hmm. on TV into musicians in their own right, mm-hmm. writing songs, performing their own songs, recording songs. Why did that all come to a, a screeching halt? That's a great question, too. I mean, in some ways, you know, by 1970... I hate to use a cliche, but I guess it's a product of the time. I mean, there's the 1960s themselves were such a turbulent era. And then there is a shift, like I said, in music, in rock and roll music, or what would have been called rock music by that point in the 1960s. But um, we get the advent of folk rock. We have the production of major music festivals, the the first one being the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. And then, of course, there's Woodstock. So I think that um, as the movements went on in the 60s, particularly the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, as Vietnam was still raging, I think that music kind of followed that. Mm-hmm. And the trajectory of it just happened to change, and the purpose of it just happened to change. And again, some of the anti-war countercultural sentiment would have come through other musicians mm-hmm. and music groups, but not through the monkeys. No, I don't think so. I mean, even um, I don't think they underwent a shift in the way that the Beatles did in 1967 with Sgt. Pepper. I mean, the, the, the shift came, and Bob Dylan inspired that for them. He wanted them to, you know, write music that didn't just sing about teenage love, that sang about issues that mattered. And so there was a different trajectory there. But I'm not sure that um, that the monkeys went that route, at least to that great of an extent. And so then what did that mean? Can we define who the monkeys fan base really were? Like, what, what did they consist of, the people who went nuts for the monkeys? Well, I think at first when they when they came out on television, um, it's it's – Kind of the younger generation of teenagers was really who the certainly the producers of the show were catering to. I think musically their appeal was broader, but I think that that's definitely the the target right off the bat. And so, what were some of the other? Because again, we've established the fact that the monkeys had to uh, work within parameters of network television, mm-hmm. corp, corporate, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the suits they had to deal with, but other bands that were around at the time and that were also at the top of the charts were were saying other things. And what kinds of things were they saying at the time? Well, of course, there's uh, to fill the gap. We'll we'll, we'll back that up and kind of fill that that gap in rock and roll between the time that it dies in the 1950s and the kind of the time that the Beatles come on the scene. I mean, I think the biggest um, act in that period of time was probably the Beach Boys. And they're interesting to look at because, you know, once the, the Beatles come over here, they're on the same record label. They're both on Capitol. So it's kind of um, difficult for them to compete, so to speak. And then um, by 1967, 1969, you start getting into artists like Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix. And there's a shift that kind of goes in that direction. And they're much more concerned about 
social issues, political issues that are going on as opposed to kind of going back to the first wave of rock and roll where we have teenagers who are looking for a creative outlet and dance and having fun and kind of really celebrating what a teenager was. And I mean, we that's something that we take for granted, but that's kind of a demographic that was essentially created in the 50s as a result of the affluence that came after World War II. And so when rock and roll came about, I mean, this is this is a marketing decision, right? I mean, there's here's our producers that are saying this is a whole demographic of people who we can sell stuff to. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that lasts, but it, by the 60s it fractures, so you still have that kind of younger group of teenagers and then you have the college age people, and they're the ones that are consuming more of the the folk rock and what was called rock music. And then of course there's that bleed into psychedelia. And Mickey Dolenz performs live this Thursday, July 21st, at UNCW's Keenan Auditorium. Professor Angie Zombeck, just help us a little bit with the difference between what we're calling rock and roll and what is pop music. Good question. Um, rock and roll, The well, if you ask music historians, I guess, they would say that actual rock and roll was the music that was produced in the mid to late 1950s, so 1955-ish until about 1959. So they would say it doesn't really go beyond that? They would say um, in the 60s they would call it rock as it became, um, as music became concerned with other issues that I've been referencing before. And then pop, it really kind of just depends on the time period. Um, And... I mean, I don't even know if we can draw these distinctions because the the three charts that I mentioned before, R&B, pop, and country western, they largely collapse. I mean, you can kind of – you can see that rock and roll and then rock has taken elements of all those other genres. So it's it's really kind of difficult to define what would constitute pop at any given moment. And, I mean, I, I guess, again, that gets us back to the, the comment on the charts. I mean, the, the people who ran the charts, like Billboard magazine, would make that determination. But otherwise, I don't think musically, stylistically, I'm not sure it's so clear. So when did those charts collapse? What, what do you mean? They're, they're, still a, they're still around. They still make the distinctions. But the more songs were able to cross over, the more I think it kind of made them not so relevant. Or, I mean, it illustrated how music was, in fact, evolving. And, it, it, and like I said before, music is kind of following the trajectory of, you could argue, the development of the United States. So early on, everything's very local. And those, the pop, R&B, country western charts are very local. But then all of a sudden, once more musicians come on the scene, I mean, Elvis certainly does this, for example. I mean, he's going to blend country western. He's going to blend elements of R&B. And so they don't necessarily collapse as an institution, so to speak, so much as the music that's being produced blurs those boundaries. Now, I, I have to say this. You, you do teach this class on <laughs> rock and roll and American society. But your, your pretty intense interest and expertise and in research yes. is in the area 
of the Civil War and Reconstruction <laughs> era. That is true. We're, we're really different. So just how, how – and we're going to have you on the show to talk about that specifically because I, I know you're working on a book. But how did you get into rock music history? This is excellent. Um, yes, I am a Civil War historian by training who dabbles in rock and roll history. And the reason that I do that, quite frankly, is because I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And and for those I've, who don't know, <laughs> the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland, Ohio, and I have been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame more times than I can count. And so, I mean, when I was growing up, it was always, you know, stories about Alan Freed. And then once the Rock Hall was developed, that was just the place to be. And I, I'm just fascinated by how music reflects undercurrents in politics and social dynamics and in culture that are more broadly apparent in the United States. And I think my biggest era of interest within rock and roll history is the 60s. As a historian, I have a theory that anything interesting happened in the decade of the 60s. <laughs> so we, we could take that back to the 1700s. We got the lead up to the revolution. Right. You know, 1860s is, of course, the Civil War. And then the 1960s, just the movements in the 60s. And I'm fascinated on how there was so much political engagement. And when I teach, I tell my students that, that it transcended into musicians. And I think that's really, really important for them to understand. And um, I'll play them you know, different songs that are reflective of the era. And they see them in a new light as far as being related to civil rights or related to the anti-war movement or you know, anything else that's going on in the 60s. You're listening to Coastline. UNCW history professor Angie Zombeck, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rachel. After this short break, we're back with Mickey Dolenz, the last surviving members of the Monkees. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. are listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Here we come. Walk down the street. Yet fun is works Everyone we Mickey Dolenz, lead singer, drummer, and last surviving member of the Monkees. While that may be his most recognizable artistic achievement, it hardly captures the breadth of his show business career. Starting in 1950s television, Mickey Dolenz played the lead role in Circus Boy, a show about an orphan named Corky, who's a water boy for circus elephants. Ten years later, at just 20 years old, Mickey Dolenz landed his role on the TV show called the Monkees. He would play the drummer and lead singer in a network comedy about a band struggling for success in L.A. The show won two Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Comedy. Mickey Dolenz wrote some of the Monkees' songs, and he also performed lead vocals for hits such as Last Train to Clarksville, Pleasant Valley Sunday, and I'm a Believer. After the Monkees, Mickey Dolenz went to London's West End, where he performed and directed musical theater. He directed and produced TV shows for the BBC and London Weekend Television. He acted in other American television shows, and he has continued to make music. 
two recent albums. One, entitled Demoiselle, is a collection of solo tunes recorded by Dolans in the 1980s and 90s, along with previously unreleased material. The other, Dolans Jones' Boyce and Heart, the guys who wrote them and the guys who sang them, is a remastered version of material that's been unavailable for decades. And Mickey Dolans performs live this Thursday, July 21st, at UNCW's Keenan Auditorium. He also performs Saturday, July 23rd, at FabFest in Charlotte. He joins me now. Mickey Dolans, welcome to Coastline. Wow, what an introduction. I did all that? <laughs> and so much that I left out. What is your <laughs> what is your favorite kind of music now? And is the music that you listen to different from what you like to play these days? Well, what I play, of course, I love playing. It's rock and roll and pop music, mostly the uh, monkey hits, of course, in my show. But I, I do pepper the show with other other uh, material. It'll be uh, sometimes uh, deep album cuts. I always play the big hits, the big uh, monkey hits. But then I'll go back and reach back into my past. And for instance, uh, sometimes I'll do... Um, like the song that was my audition piece for the monkeys was a Johnny be good by Chuck Berry. So I may do that, or I'll do a Beatle tune of a, at a, from a session that I was at from a Beatle session, um, for instance. Um, so I will pepper the show depending on the audience, depending on the, you know, uh, the venue and stuff like that. I will do other material. It, it usually always has some sort of a connection to my life and and my career and 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 things like that. Uh, the music that I listen, I don't listen to contemporary music. Um, I'm familiar, you know, I hear it uh, on the radio and in you know uh, supermarkets, <laughs> um, but I don't listen because I don't tend to listen at home to um, to a lot of. Uh, music unless it's instrumental just as background because i'm always usually doing something and or writing something or in the morning i listen to uh, uh actually i listen to spanish guitar that was my first instrument kind of segovia sort of stuff as a kid and i'll listen to uh, spanish classical uh guitar music um in the morning and then um and most of the day and then at night, uh, you know, five o'clock with a glass of wine, my wife and I will mainly listen to standards. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Billy Holiday, uh, one of my favorite, Johnny Mathis, uh, who was a huge influence on on my uh, my uh, vocal uh, career uh, as a young as a youngster. And, and rock and roll, you know, the the typical, you know, the like I said, the Jerry Lee Lewis and the Fats Domino and uh, and uh, uh, Chuck Berry, that kind of thing. And you actually started playing classical guitar thanks to your dad. What what do you remember about your dad's introducing you to to classical guitar? I do remember. I I do remember. Um, my family was very musical right from the get go. Um, <clears throat> my dad was a, a singer actor musical, uh, uh, light, light musical, what, what do they call it? Light opera. Um, and, um, my mom was a singer, big band era and an actress. They met doing a play. So music was always around the house. My mother was from Texas. So I got a good dose of, uh, sons of the pioneers and, uh, 
Tennessee Ernie Ford, you know, and that that kind of stuff in the 50s. My dad was from Italy off the boat and was into, like I say, light opera, but also classical music being uh, European. And so classical music was always around the house. And I do remember, I guess I was maybe nine or 10 years old, maybe 11. And he played a Segovia album for me. And I, w- I just did not believe him that that there was one man <laughs> playing that <laughs> those songs on that guitar. I said, how's that possible? It's a, it's a bass line and a separate melody line, you know. And he said, it is. And sure enough, um, I listened to the album. And he just got me started in guitar lessons, uh, uh, classical guitar lessons, at about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And I really got into it. I loved it. And I ended up getting invited to parties in junior high and high school um, uh, because I could play guitar. (laughs) But uh, quickly, um, I'd be playing a little bit of Malaganya, you know, or something. And the girls would say, do you know any Kingston Trio? And I said, said, hang on, I'll be right back. (laughs) Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head. And uh, I got into folk music big time in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, And, you know, the We Five and and, uh, uh, like uh, the Kingston Trio and um, and then that morphed, uh, like I said, into uh, rock and roll. And I got into some rock and roll cover bands playing a little bit of uh, rhythm rock and roll guitar, mostly singing uh, cover songs um, in a couple of uh, cover bands called uh, one called Mickey and the One Nighters and the other called The Missing Links. And that got me singing cover tunes. And I tended to go for the rock and roll stuff, the, the hard kind of rock and roll stuff. Uh, like uh, uh, Johnny Be Good and uh, Great Balls of Fire and uh, and uh, House of the Rising Sun by the, you know, by um, uh, my brain's gone. You know who I mean? Um, yes. And uh, and then you know the monkeys came along and rest is uh, is history. Sure. And you have actually said and and there has been so much documented about your time in the monkeys and the the life stories of all four of you. So we won't spend a lot of time on monkeys history. And you've actually said that the most important time in your life, or one of the key times, was when the monkeys ended. You said that you also went through this with Circus Boy. When you come off a project that has been such a huge part of your identity and your heart and your imagination for a while. What happens inside of you? What what does that do to you as an artist? Well, in in the case of the uh, of the monkeys, um, I was uh, I well, I mean even expecting it. I knew series didn't last forever; they get canceled, as ours did, and <clears throat> um, I'd been through it with Circus Boy. Um, and my my life just went on. My parents very wisely um, took me out of the business entirely after Circus Boy. Instead of keeping me going as a 12-year-old, you know, and trying to get another gig. And that's the dangerous time in a child star's uh, career is after the success. And like, Mommy, why don't they love me anymore? You know, nobody is is talking to me or hiring me. So they took me out wisely and went back to school, 
then I started to go to college to be a architect, as a matter of fact, which you may have heard. And I was a couple of years into architecture um, college and the monkey audition came along. I was still dabbling. I, I was going to be an architect. And if I couldn't be an architect, I was going to fall back on showbiz. <laughs> and um, the monkey thing came along, but I wasn't a fool. I knew the power of a series. I got the show, got the series. And but I guess in the back of my mind, I always knew this is going to end one day. We we ran for two years. 50, uh, I think 52 episodes, which today would be the equivalent of about, boy, I don't know, uh, six years at least. Uh, you know, they do now six, eight episodes a year, maybe. You packed a uh, lot so that into that been... two years. You really yeah, packed no a kidding. lot into that two years. And also as part of that production, you weren't just taping the show. You were recording the songs? Yes, rehearsing uh, for the sh- for the live show, recording the songs very early on. They actually wouldn't. You've heard the story, I'm sure. They actually wouldn't let us um, uh, record very early on. They said we don't have time, you know. And um, I I was learning the drums. I played guitar, but they said you're the drummer. I said fine. Where do I start? I started taking lessons. Um, but yeah, eventually, well, I was always doing the vocals. We were always doing all the vocals, of course. And I was kind of the, I guess, lead singer. I did most of the the, the lead songs on the hits and and the albums. And David did some wonderful uh, songs also, as you know. Um, but um, yeah, I, I would be filming for 12 hours a day and then have to go in to the studio and record sometimes two vocals, lead vocals, every night because they needed so much material for the show. And you, so you're coming into this as a musician, a legitimate musician. You sang, you played the guitar, but you had to learn how to play the drums. Yeah, but I mean, I had, I knew music. I could, I could read music because of the guitar and I'd been around bands. And so I wasn't starting totally from scratch and I only had to learn what I had to learn. I didn't have to learn every song of every genre as if I were uh, in a co- playing in a cover band, let's say, or or playing in a Broadway pit <laughs> job. I didn't have to do that. Uh, I just had to learn what I had to learn. But, you know, I was I'd been hired as a, as you say, it's more than a musician. It was we were all hired for multiple tasks. It was kind of like casting a musical where you had to be able to do it all, sing and dance and play and act and improvise in our case. You know that show Glee that came along? Yes. The 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 television show about the um the Glee club in a school. Um well, it was a very, you know, 20 years before that at least. It was similar in the sense that The Monkees was a TV show about this imaginary rock and roll band as you said. Like Glee was a television show about an imaginary Glee club, but they could all do it. And they went on the road, if I'm not mistaken, at some point, as as we did. Right. Now, you have come out with albums since The Monkees ended. And I, I do want to play a cut from Demoiselle. But before we get to that, I just need to clarify so many music historians and, and analysts have compared the monkeys to the Beatles. They've said the monkeys are the American answer to the Beatles. And you take issue with that. You say, no, that's not quite right. Why is that? 
Well, it's 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 just incorrect, you know. It's but of course they're journalists, and it's excuse, sorry, but and they they want to go for a headline, you know, fab uh, prefab four, manufacture this or that. But the the truth is is that the monkeys was not at all like the Beatles. The monkeys was a television show about this band that wanted to be the Beatles. We even had a poster of the Beatles in our in, on our set, we, you know, and where we lived was a set. We didn't really live there. It was a beach house in Malibu, which does beg the question of how we could afford a beach house in Malibu when we never got any work <laughs> because <laughs> the television show was a show about a band that wanted to be the Beatles and famous, but we never made it on the TV show. It was that struggle for success that I think had a lot to do to endear it to all the all those all these generations all those kids that were in their garages and basements and living rooms practicing and trying to trying to make it and trying to be a band that's what the monkeys was all about so tell us about this so-called lost solo album which features solo recordings you made in the early 19 actually through the 1980s to the early 1990s and it also includes material that's never been released what what is this album about for you it was demos that's where the name demoiselle comes from it, it's a pun you know it's a, a take on uh, uh, how do you say it in french <laughs> That Mademoiselle, Dem- uh, there, there's a word I can't think of it right. Now. Um, but it's Demoiselle, and it's for it's demos. And of course, when you're young, and and a lot of songs are written about love and love affairs and and breaking up, as were many of the songs on this album. But it wasn't done originally as uh, an album to be released. These were demos that I was doing in my home studio of songs that either I had written or I had found. And I was going to go and play these, and I did, for for record companies uh, briefly uh, for, to get a, a, an album uh, a record deal. And then a good friend of mine I'd done, I've been touring with, Jerry Corbetta, said, listen, I, they were only sometimes one or two instruments, my voice and a guitar or whatever. And he said, let me put some keyboards on this and we'll put it on some drum tracks and we'll do this and that and we'll kind of jazz it up. And I said, cool. And we did that. And we and I had this album uh, called Demoiselle that I had as an album of demos uh, to, to try to get a record deal. But I shortly got, you know, uh, scooped up doing directing gigs and going on the road and touring and then starting to do musicals on Broadway and stuff. And it just kind of got, you know, put on the back burner until 7A Records, who had heard about it, and it had been around, uh, some of the tunes. I printed up a few uh, CDs. Uh, They heard about it, and they said, we would love to uh, release it, and here we are. And so we have a cut from that album called My Heart is Failing Me. Let's, Let's... Unbelievable tune. Unbelievable, written by Albert Hammond and Holly Knight. Just an incredible song. Well, let's listen to just part of that. Sure. Never a single day passes by When I don't feel a part of my time And I wonder why I feel like my heart is failing I remember the 
And that is My Heart is Failing Me from Mickey Dolan's album Demoiselle, which features solo recordings made between the 1980s to the early 1990s. Now, Mickey Dolan's, you, amid all this this touring and, and playing other music after the Monkees, you also spent a lot of time in England, and you directed TV shows for the BBC. Tell us how you happened into that. Sure. Yeah, I was, uh, after, after the Monkees and after I was... Uh, uh, kicking around and doing stuff in Los Angeles. I wanted to direct and produce. That's what I had kind of had my sights set on after the monkeys. I directed an episode, wrote and directed an episode of the monkeys. And I'd been in the business at that time over 10 years from Circus Boy. And I was always interested, fascinated by the behind the scenes activity on a, on a show. I went to England to do a musical, a musical play called The Point, a Harry Nielsen uh, musical that I went over there and did with uh, Jones. It was a limited run, pantomime season thing. But I brought my reels over, gave them to an agent. Agent sent my reels over to the BBC, and I got a gig um, at the BBC directing drama. I was married at the time to an English girl so I could work. And I ha- didn't have any reason to get back to L.A. right away. So it was one of those cases of I was going to you know, stay for a few months and see how it went. And I ended up there for nearly 15 years. And that was what I was doing all the time. Very little music or singing. It was directing, producing, creating television shows. I wrote and directed uh, a musical version of an Alan Parker film called Bugsy Malone in the West End. I did commercials, movies, uh, uh, you know, uh, shorts, uh, uh, music videos. Because over there as a director, you tended to to you know to be all over the place doing all kinds of stuff but mostly multiple camera uh, television shows sitcoms so you, know. you you also wrote an autobiography as if you didn't have enough creative output what as you put that together thinking about your life and about your public persona versus who you really are and of course there's always a difference there there has to be but what do you think people assume about you the most that isn't quite right or or what do people not really understand about who Mickey Dolan's really is well, I think you already said it. There's a difference between the person and the persona. And um, I think a lot of people still misunderstand that the Monkees was not this group. I was not the drummer of, of, of this. Well, I was, but like and Mike Nesmith used to say, when we went on the road, uh, it was Nokio becoming a real little boy. Um, so, yeah, we went and played. We played live. But, um, well, the same with Circus Boy. I'm, I wasn't a little blonde-haired kid from the Midwest in the 1890s. Um, but I think the biggest, the, I think the thing that most people miss, and I would say this maybe about a lot of uh, a lot of entertainers, not so much maybe today with social media, because all of your person and your persona tends to get pretty much homogenized together these days. But back then, you could have sort of a private life, private life and hobbies and other interests besides showbiz. Not so easy today. My interests, hobbies have always been, for instance, building, like I was going to be an architect, uh, science. I'm a big uh, science freak, uh, especially quantum physics and uh, and particle physics and um, all the sciences. And uh, 
you know, uh, lots of other interests that have nothing to do with with show business. And um, and that's, I think. But, you know, most people, when they meet me and I start going off, if I have the opportunity, going off on like Bell's theorem or something like that, they're like, how do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I want to get this in one more time. Mickey Dolenz is appearing live in Wilmington tomorrow night, July 21st at UNCW's Keenan Auditorium. Mickey Dolenz, when it comes to what's still in your mind, your heart, and your imagination about what you want to do in this life, is there still some kind of artistic output that you want to to make? No, but you know there never was. I never made the choice to be in this business. I followed in my father's footsteps and my mother. I I don't know if I was at, at 10 years old before I'd ever made the uh, uh, you get to before you get to the age to make that sort of a choice. So I was just following in my father's footsteps. It gave me a great career. I feel blessed that I've had this career. The only time I or I ever made a, a choice, a career choice was not showbiz. It was to be an architect. So who knows? I mean, uh, uh, but I don't, I never did have those kinds of, of artistic desires. But what always attracted me to a project, shall we say, and it's, you know, usually being offered a project would be the material. It would be a TV show or to direct or a movie to act in or a record to record or, but it was always the material for me. It's something that turned me on, uh, you know, as an actor or a singer or a musician or whatever, or a writer. I'm, I'm currently writing a screenplay with a, a friend of mine, uh, a thriller. And it was the material that attracted me to, to writing. So it's always been that. So it's in, in a way, it's always, I'm, I'm maybe looking for the next thing, but I don't know what it's going to be. And we'll look forward to hearing about that thriller that, that hopefully gets made. Yeah. That is this edition of Coastline. Mickey Dolenz, what a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for your time. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find it at whqr.org. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.